Join me in your Bibles in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23 this morning. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. We are nearing our end of the study in the book of John. This will be the second of Jesus' appearances after his resurrection, appearing to his disciples this time. So John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, and as you turn there, join with me as we ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send now your spirit, just as you have promised in this passage, send now your spirit to help us to understand your word, that it might bear great fruit in our hearts. Help us to be not only hearers of the word, but just as we've been convicted by the reading of your law this morning. Help us to be doers of your word as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Throughout John's gospel, we have been seeing this theme that Jesus has been sent. In fact, John is making the case throughout his gospel that Jesus has been sent by God. John the Baptist spoke about the ministry of Jesus in John 3, verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure, laying for us a foundation that everything that Jesus did in his ministry, everything that Jesus said in his ministry, was evidence or testimony that Jesus had been sent by the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus describing this, he says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has done what? Has sent me. So if you think about the, essentially the first half of the book of John as the book of signs, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, turning the water into wine, healing the official son, all of these were evidence to prove and substantiate the claim that Jesus had been sent by God. Jesus even referenced this. Uh, At the tomb of Lazarus, when he is to raise Lazarus from the dead, he prays this prayer. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you what? You sent me. Isn't that interesting, right? So time and time again throughout John's gospel, Jesus is saying that he has been sent by the Father. Like a royal emissary or a president's diplomat sent on assignment from the sovereign, Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is being sent by God the Father, taking the form of human flesh, sent by God on a mission, commission for a special task. What is that task? I asked myself that question as I was doing word studies on the word sent in the Gospel of John. And I found what seemed to be only one place where Jesus described the reason that he was sent. It's, on, it's in John chapter 3. Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who has come to question Jesus at night. And that famous verse that we have all been uh, taught since our youth, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave. I tricked you. I know. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then the very next verse says what? For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be what? Saved. So what was the assignment of Jesus? What had the Father sent him to do? He didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, though he would have been right in condemning the world and decreeing judgment upon the world. But from Jesus' own words, the reason that he came, the reason that he was sent by the Father was so that those who hear him and who receive him they receive the right to become sons of God, and they inherit eternal life through him. Keeping that background in mind, it makes Jesus' words to his disciples here in verse 21 so significant. You see it there in verse 21 that Jesus would say to his disciples, as the Father, what? Sent me. Now stop and think about that right now, knowing all that background in mind, the reason that Jesus was sent. And now Jesus is telling his disciples after his resurrection, as the Father has sent me, what does Jesus do? Even so, I am doing what? I am sending you. So just as Jesus was commissioned by his Father, given a task to do, that those who hear the gospel of his grace would receive eternal life. Now he is sending his disciples to carry on that work. We might refer to this as the Great Commission in John's gospel. It has the same type of meaning, doesn't it, as Matthew 28. Jesus is here identifying that just as he was sent by his Father, so now he is sending his disciples and through them, through the ministry of his disciples. And I would say not just those who become apostles, but 
even through the church, all those who are disciples of Christ, they are carrying on the work and the ministry of Jesus. Doing what? Spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that all who receive him by faith become heirs to eternal life. I think it's important for us to pause and ask the question then as we look at this passage, what does it mean for Jesus to send his disciples? He doesn't send them alone, does he? He gives them his Holy Spirit. In fact, he, he has been sent, and so now he sends his disciples, but as he's sending his disciples, he sends to them his Holy Spirit. There's a whole lot of sending happening in the Gospel of John, isn't it? Jesus is sending his disciples to carry on his work and ministry, and he is sending his disciples not to do this work alone or in their own strength or in their own power, but he is sending them with the sent one, the Holy Spirit. The counselor is going with them. So what does it mean for a disciple to be sent by Jesus with the Spirit? What does that mean? Three things I want us to see in this passage that this means for us. Number one, Jesus sends his disciples with his peace. You notice Jesus' first words to his disciples here in this passage. He says it twice, doesn't he? Verse 19, what does he tell them? Peace be with you. And then again in verse 21, peace be with you. Now, the disciples at this moment are feeling anything but peace. What have they done? They have gathered together. This is the day that Jesus has been resurrected up from the grave. This is now the evening. This is the same day that Jesus has been resurrected. And so word has begun to spread that the tomb is empty, that Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb. The tomb was empty and she saw Jesus. Peter and John are now making the report that they have gone and the tomb was indeed and in fact empty. We can fill in the gap from the other gospel accounts that other people as well were seeing Jesus. The disciples on the road to Emmaus saw Jesus on that day. And so there's all these reports that the tomb is empty and some are making the claim that Jesus has been resurrected while others are making the claim that the body has been stolen. And now the disciples and probably some of the others in the early church, those who were followers of Jesus, they are gathered together on this first day of the week for the church's first church service. <laughs> Here they are gathered together and the doors are locked for they are afraid that the Jewish leaders will now come after them. The scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin and their plot to put Jesus to death, they would have considered that in this moment a success. And so now the disciples are probably thinking to themselves, they're going to carry on this task. 
They took Jesus out. They had him crucified by the Romans. And so now they are going to finish the job and they may come after us. And so here is the first church service and they are gathered together in secret, behind locked doors, feeling anything but peace at this very moment. And Jesus, just as we saw prior, passed right through those burial clothes, passes right through those locked doors somehow, and appears in their midst. And his first words to them were not, hey, what happened to all you guys back there after I was arrested? <laughs> Why did all of you abandon me at my moment of crisis? Those are not Jesus' first words to his disciples. His first words to his disciples are, peace be with you. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would declare this and show them what? What does verse 19, uh, let's see, verse 20 say? He had said this, and then what did he do? He showed them his hands. The very hands that had been pierced by nails where he was hung upon the cross. Jesus, with a glorified body, somehow mysteriously to me, has scars, has evidence that he was hung upon the cross. And Jesus shows them his hands. And Jesus shows them his side where the spear pierced his side after his death. Jesus shows them. What's he saying? It's really me. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a phantom. I have physically resurrected from the dead. Look, here's the evidence. I'm a real person, is what Jesus is saying. Their peace is not circumstantial. Their peace is not based upon an empty emotion. The disciples' peace even though the threat by the Romans and the Jewish leaders was real. Their peace was based upon the perfect work of Jesus Christ, for now they had true peace. They had peace because of the cross of Christ. You see, peace for a Christian is different from that in the world. Jesus told his disciples, he promised them, in fact, in John 14, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. The peace that Jesus gives is a peace that is different than the world can offer. The world often thinks about peace as what? An absence of conflict. The disciples, they will have anything but the absence of conflict. In fact, essentially all of them According to the reports of church history, they will go on to die a martyr's death. Peter, the apostle, will be crucified upside down. Andrew will be crucified on an X-shaped cross. James, the son of Zebedee, will be put to death by the sword. The apostle Paul will be beheaded by the Romans. On and on we go of the apostles who were persecuted and who became martyrs for their faith and trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, those who are persecuted have a tremendous amount of what? Peace in the midst of all of this. 
Peace comes from knowing not that your life is absent of conflict. True peace, the peace that Christ gives, comes from knowing that you have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. That's where peace comes from for a Christian. Last week, I think it was last week, Travis and I were called to the hospital where Mr. Harry Broadman had just died, one of the founding members of this church on the provisional session. He was a, a giant in the faith in my eyes. Dating all the way back his time, to 1973, when the PCA was formed, he was in Savannah doing the work of ministry as a ruling el- a deacon and then a ruling elder in the church, helping to plant and establish Presbyterian churches in this area, in the new denomination. And in fact, he was even uh, a participant in the case over the fight for property. So when the PCA formed... There was a question about who got to keep the property. Did the old Southern Presbyterian Church get to keep the property, or did the churches, the individual churches, keep the property? And that was a legal case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And they won. And Mr. Harry Broadman was there fighting the good fight to that end. Travis and I were called to the hospital, and we arrived there. We go up and see... Hal and some of the other family members that many of you will know. At this moment in time, we did not know that Mr. Broadman had died. And so we walked in and said, you're the family of Mr. Broadman? Yes, I'm David. I'm his pastor. This is Travis, ruling elder, and we're here to see him. We heard that he doesn't have much time left. And they said, he's already gone home to be with Jesus. And the first words out of my mouth were, I'm so sorry for your loss. And how, I think it was how, he looked at me and he said, Don't be sorry, preacher. We're not sorry. Our dad has gone home to be with our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, true Christian peace comes not from the absence of conflict. True Christian peace comes not even in the absence of death. Christians can have a peace that surpasses understanding. Why? Because they have been reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, he sends his disciples with his spirit. He sends his disciples with his what? Peace. They're going to have conflict. They are going to have tribulation. They are going to have hardship. But that will not affect their peace. They will maintain their peace even in the face of tribulation. So Jesus, he sends his disciples with his spirit. He sends them with his peace. And second, I want you to see, I'm proud of myself for this alliteration, okay, with his presence. So he sends them with his peace, and now I want you to see he sends them with his presence. Look at verse 22. After Jesus had said this, when he said this, what did Jesus do? He breathed on them, 
and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit has been promised to the disciples in John 14. Jesus promised, I will ask the Father, he will give to you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So think about this logically in the Gospel of John. Jesus comes and he tabernacles among us in the flesh. That's what Jesus did. He is with his disciples. They can see him, talk to him, touch him, hear him. But after he leaves, he still remains with his disciples. He is still present with his disciples by his what? Spirit. John 14, 25 through 26, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. There's a bit of irony in the Gospel of John where people are speaking better than they know. They are saying things that they, about Jesus that they really don't understand yet. But the Spirit's work with the disciples is after the fact they are able to reflect on what occurred and then able to understand the work of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting here that Jesus, what's it say in verse 22? What does he do? What is the action of Jesus in the sending of the Spirit? Seems a bit mysterious to us, isn't it? Verse 22, what did Jesus do? He breathed on them. Now, some of you shudder at that. You don't like to be breathed on. That's making you uncomfortable. Even right now, the thought that someone would breathe on you. Probably a better translation to say that Jesus just, he breathed. He, he, he breathed out. This is probably to be understood as a sign of what's to come on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Jesus now, the Word of God, through whom all creation was made by the Word of His power, He is breathing out on His disciples the Spirit. Sounds a bit to us like the book of Genesis, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve, mankind is created by God. God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. And then what does Genesis 2, 7 tell us that God did after he had formed Adam from the dust of the ground? What did he do? He breathes on him and he became a what? A living soul. And so what we think is happening here is what Jesus is doing is he is establishing the church as his new creation. We're picking up on that theme, that new creation theme in the book of John here. Just as we have seen Jesus go through the garden, come through the garden and be resurrected out through the garden victorious, now he is establishing his church as his new creation, forming them and breathing out upon them his spirit. What happens to the church when Jesus is present with them. What happens to the church when Jesus, by his spirit, is present with them? This is a question that 
God's people in the book of Ezekiel asked themselves. They were wondering, is God with us? When we read Ezekiel 37, they felt like because they were in Babylon that all hope was gone. They were saying that our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. The temple had been destroyed. It was the visible sign to them of God's dwelling among them. And so God decreed judgment upon them. And the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple. And and the people of God had been carried away into exile. And now they are wondering, is God with us? Is his presence still with us? Ezekiel chapter 1 begins with an incredible vision that the prophet has. He sees God's presence in Babylon with the exiles. And so the answer in Ezekiel chapter 1 is God with us even though we're away from the promised land. And the answer is a resounding yes. Just because the temple has been destroyed doesn't mean that God's presence has departed away from his people. God's presence goes with his people. In Ezekiel chapter 37, so remarkable, they feel like their hope is lost. They feel like their bones are dry. And the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of the valley of what? Dry bones. And the Lord tells the prophet Ezekiel, he asks him, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, only you know. And the Lord tells the prophet, begin to prophesy to them. Prophesy that they will live. And so he does. And and there is a, a massive sound in that valley as all these bones begin to come back together in this vision. And as skeletons begin to appear and and as muscle and sinew and skin begins to form on all these people it must have been an awesome vision that the prophet Ezekiel had and then he is told to prophesy to them again and God breathed out he sends his wind and breathes out upon them and they become living beings And then the vision concludes that Ezekiel the prophet saw them as what? What did he see them as? An exceedingly great army. You want to know why Jesus is with his church? Because his church is militant in this present evil age. Jesus is present with his church to establish them to fight against the work of the evil one and to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that those who would look on him might believe and receive eternal life. I was talking to a stranger one day, many years, several years ago now, and came up quickly in conversation that we were both Christians and we were talking about the state of the world and state of politics and the state of the church and uh and to be honest with you we're having a bit of a pessimistic moment oh things are so bad in the world i'll never forget this man he said to me things are so bad you know there might even come a day that there's no longer a church And that's when I looked at that man and I said, with all due respect, 
You couldn't be any further from the truth. There will always be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. Why? Because he's present with them. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25. Travis and I will hear about some issue in the church, and Travis will just look at me. He'll go, Westminster 25. I'll say, "Mm mm-hmm, that's right. What's Westminster 25? Westminster 25 says that there's a church, but the church, uh, it fluctuates, doesn't it, in purity and holiness. It means the light of Christ is not always as equally shining as brightly through the light of the church as it ought to. That does not negate the fact, though, that there will always be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth to worship him, his army that is filled with his presence. Jesus sends his disciples with his spirit. He sends them with his peace. He sends them with his presence. And lastly, I want you to see here, again, I'm proud of the alliteration. You'll remember it. He sends them with his power. He sends them with his power. What does Jesus say to them? He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You need to understand that our polity talks about the work and the authority of the church. It's in the the, uh, preliminary principles of the Book of Church Order. I'm sure all of you have been started your Book of Church Order reading plan this year. If you haven't, it's not too late to start. In the preliminary principles of the Book of Church Order, it says that the church's power is ministerial and declarative. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is that truth, that the authority and the work of the church is ministerial and declarative, that as they are going forth preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and calling people to repentance, as they come to repentance, His disciples, his church is there to say, your sins are forgiven. But as there are those who are rejecting the gospel, the church is there to say, forgiveness is withheld from you until you confess faith in Christ. Saw a video clip recently of an old preacher who he was drawing out some of the ways that the scripture talks about itself three ways he emphasized number one that the scripture describes itself as a hammer the word of God is like a hammer and it smashes the word of God is like a fire that burns and consumes and the word of God is like a sword that pierces Doesn't it make sense then if the word of God is like a hammer and a sword and a fire that when the word of God is preached that there will be those whose hearts are burned as the word is preached? Doesn't it make sense then as the word is preached that there will be those whose hearts are pierced by the sword of the Spirit? Doesn't it make sense then that as the word is preached that there will be those whose pride is crushed by the word? Our culture is so afraid to offend and to tell people that they need to repent of sins. 
Here we see God's word like a fire, like a sword, like a hammer. Laying waste those who come into contact with it. The very power of God, active as the word of God is preached. Jesus is telling his disciples in this passage, I'm sending you with my power. He tells Peter that he's been given what? The keys of the kingdom. Whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There is no salvation separate and apart from the church. For there the church of Jesus Christ declares those who come in contact with the word that their sins are forgiven them. You say, well, pastor, what about when a person doesn't repent? Uh, Certainly that happens. That doesn't mean that the word of God has failed, though. Maybe the word of God is at work slowly in that person's heart, chipping away at their pride, piece by piece by piece. So that by the time they come to Christ, they are deconstructed of all their pride and fall at the feet of Jesus. Jesus sends his disciples with his peace, sends them with his presence, and he sends them with his power. And he is present with his church even to this day. Let's go before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your spirit. We thank you that we in this life In this present evil age, when the church is fighting against the wicked and the evil one, that we have the promise of your spirit, that you are with us through every trial, through every hardship, through every conflict. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with greater boldness now, with the truth from your word. Be with us now as we come to the table of the Lord. May it be a reminder to us that you are present with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.